You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. This is Pat Carey. This is Sydney Homing. Hey, I'm John Dunn, Managing Director at Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Hi, welcome to today's episode of The Beltway Briefing. We're coming at you today from outside the Beltway uh, in the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois, and the Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies Chicago team. I'm joined by my colleagues, John Dunn and Sydney Holman, and we're going to talk today about our municipal election results, which occurred earlier this week on Tuesday, February 28th. It was an eventful election, most notably our, our incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, was unsuccessful in her re-election campaign and did not make the top two candidates who will proceed to a runoff uh, in early April to decide who will be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. So what I'd like to start with today is just throwing it to John and Sydney with a question about whether after four years of a very combative mayoralty, whether it was inevitable that Lori Lightfoot didn't make the runoff or whether there were aspects of her campaign that have kept her on the outside looking in as we transition into the second round of voting. So, hey, I'll kick off. It's a great question. I mean, putting aside her sort of governing style and you know criticisms about her personality, it is a great question. Were there specific things she could have done that would have altered the election? Um, a couple of things pop into my mind. First of all, when she ran last time uh, against Tony Preckwinkle, she was endorsed by Willie Wilson. And had she embraced Willie Wilson four years ago, would he have run this time? Maybe not. Would he have endorsed her? Maybe. Willie got just under 10% of the vote. He attracts an older vote, older black vote. And um, that might have helped her. A second thing that maybe she could have done is um, the other day, her police superintendent, David Brown, resigned. And Brown and policing were a flashpoint in the election. So a year ago, if she had, uh, you know, gotten rid of David Brown, would that have changed the course of the election? Maybe. And then more recently, during the campaign, she spent money initially going after Chewy Garcia, and then she spent money going after Paul Vallis, and then she spent money late in the election going after Brandon Johnson. That one's a little more difficult because, you know, Maybe she couldn't have foreseen, maybe a lot of people didn't foresee that Brandon Johnson would come on so strong at the end. But those are three things that pop into my head. I just want to add on to that. Um, I definitely agree with whatever thing John says, but I also noticed that she really did not do a good job of touting her accomplishments. Like nobody really knew what she was doing or what she did in her previous four terms. So there was nothing for you know people to really look back to to say, well, she did this better than this candidate could. So I think I'm um, just not really being able to illustrate her track record, definitely hurt her in the long run. I guess one thing I would add is her strategy this time was to go after the Black vote. And and one thing that she couldn't change was the number of Black candidates in the race. So that Black vote was spread among several people, which made it more difficult. Her her votes, her vote totals uh, this time compared to four years ago were up in Black wards and, and significantly up in several of the Black wards. Um, so she, you know, she succeeded um, in executing that, but was hampered by the fact that there were um, so many other black candidates in the race. Yeah. So John mentioned the field uh, and the, the black candidates. So seven of the nine candidates in the field were black, including Lori Lightfoot and uh, Willie Wilson, uh, a prominent businessman who John mentioned. Uh, we've gotten this far and we have not mentioned the two 
uh, front-runner candidates who have advanced and will be in the second round, former Chicago Public School CEO Paul Vallis and a Cook County Commissioner and Chicago Teachers Union organizer Brandon Johnson. They uh, both appealed to different parts of the electorate, but were able to energize uh, coalitions of voters that were able to propel them in the second round. And Willie Wilson ended up finishing fourth behind Whitefoot. So Paul Vallis, uh, as I mentioned, is best known for being a CEO of the Chicago Public Schools in the 1990s, uh, has generated a bit of a reputation as a perennial candidate. He's had previous runs for governor, for lieutenant governor, and also for mayor back in 2019 that were all unsuccessful. So I'm curious what you both think Paul Vallis did this time that generated a different outcome for him than his previous runs. Uh, I've got some thoughts, but I'll let you both chime in as to what you think made the difference for him in this race. So I think with Vallis, first of all, crime, he took advantage of the crime issue and made it his signature policy piece. And he really kind of stood out from the rest of the field in making that his issue. Second of all, he had, you know, he took advantage of what Lightfoot couldn't take advantage of. I just mentioned that, you know, Mayor Lightfoot was faced with several other black candidates in the race. Uh, this time, Paul Vallis was the only white candidate in the race. When he ran in uh, 2019, there were several white candidates. And there were other uh, people who said they were going to run or maybe were talked about running. There were people talking about Arnie Duncan running. He didn't run. Pat Quinn, he didn't run. Mike Quigley, uh, he didn't run. Tom Tunney at one point was passing petitions and didn't run. So I think Paul uh, benefited in a way that um, Mayor Lightfoot didn't run. And I guess the final thing I would say is, you know, he ran a pretty disciplined campaign. He has had a, a criticism in the past of, of you know, kind of being all over the map. And I think everybody agreed he ran a very um, on-message disciplined campaign this time. Yeah, I think that last point definitely resonates with me. Vallis has very much a reputation as a policy wonk, um, and he so far has avoided getting into too many details or getting bogged down in the campaign and has run a much more high-level messaging-driven uh, campaign that appeals to uh, public safety, which is an issue that a lot of voters are concerned about. Sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum in a lot of ways, not just ideologically, um, but also in uh, uh, campaign style, uh, Sidney Brandon Johnson really became the momentum candidate in the last couple of weeks of the race. You know, he, he entered the race last fall, had single-digit polling, single-digit name ID, but had the backing of the very powerful Chicago Teachers Union, as well as a number of other progressive organized labor groups. And he was able to slowly build that momentum and really peak at the right time. What was it about uh, Johnson's message, do you think, that that resonated with his base voters? And how do you think he seeks to build on the momentum uh, that uh, culminated Tuesday and build on that into the runoff as he tries to broaden his coalition and become our next mayor? Um, I think Johnson did a really good job of being able to resonate with the average Chicagoan talking about his struggles growing up. And so that's something Paul Vallis doesn't really have. And neither does, you know, the uh, mayor like for him. You know, he grew up, he's from here. He came from the struggle. So I think that was a big, a big push on his behalf. I'm um, also outside of the Chicago Teachers Union, um, United Working Families. They um, basically just came 100% and just really just kind of, this took over everything just with door knocking and with messaging. Um, and with that, he was also able to, you know, secure a lot of the support from the Northwest side, Latino community. And I think that definitely helped his numbers and that helped his broad reach. 
Because before this, you know, he wasn't really super well known outside of, you know, his district as Cook County Board Commissioner. So I think those things really helped him, you know, provide that. And the last thing I'll say to that is he built a more grassroots intimate campaign. So he had a lot of house fundraisers, a lot of house events. So he was really able to just kind of do a lot more on the grounds work with these people. But I do think the momentum will continue to go strong. Um, I think, you know, he's really, because he's built up such a diverse coalition, I think he's going to be able to, really, we're going to see some numbers increasing, especially as people who voted for the other Black candidates may decide that they're going to support him. And so I think if he kind of gains some of their support, I think that might definitely help him and his numbers. Um, But the challenge is going to be whether those who voted for Lori Lightfoot are going to go with the Black candidate or they're going to go with Paul Ballas, specifically just on the public safety issue or whether the two supporters, you know, feel betrayed and, you know, may not go for Johnson and may go to Ballas. So um, I think that will be kind of be like the turning point and like the things that we'll need to look out for. I only had two things to, I agree with Sydney 100%, only two things to tack on to that. One is he's a great candidate. I mean, he is very personable, charismatic, funny. So he he's um, very engaging and like Sydney said, he's going to be very formidable in the runoff. Second of all, taking it outside of Chicago, but nationally, the United States is at historic wealth disparities. And I think the wealth gap is driving a lot of issues over the past couple of years, increasing the minimum wage, uh, paid sick leave, fair work week. And I think Johnson is positioned um, uh, to take advantage of that um, politically. That, I think that's driving a lot of politics in the United States. Yeah, so you both really set up what I think are the core dynamics of the runoff, which is how does Vallis take his base, which is uh, largely white voters, largely more moderate on the spectrum, largely folks who would um, say that public safety is their top concern in this election, and where does he have to grow? You know, most of those voters already voted for Paul Vallis. So how does he take uh, the the uh, roughly 33% of the vote that he got um, and add to those folks and get a majority? Whereas Johnson, as Sidney talked about, has a much broader coalition, um, but it's largely on the left end of the political spectrum. And is there anything he may do in this you know five-week sprint to April 4th to either moderate his positions to attract more voters or conversely double down on his positions and try to further motivate his base um, young voters as with all elections you know turned out at a rate significantly lower um, than older voters and I think younger voters are much more likely to be Johnson voters um, one final point on turnout and then I'll, I'll turn it to you for your thoughts on on those items is uh, right now in the first round turnout stands at 30 Two percent may inch up, you know, somewhere over 33, maybe hit 34, uh, based on additional mail ballots as they come in. Uh, four years ago, in 2019, when Lightfoot was elected, uh, made it out of the first round of the runoff, turnout was 35 percent. So we, we're seeing a little bit of a lag in turnout. Um, and typically, there's a drop off between the first round of the runoff, um, where you have fewer aldermanic races on the ballot, and you know, not everyone comes out for the second round. So from 2019, turnout dipped about turnout dipped about two points which using the current figures would put us right around 30% for the April election. You know, I'm sort of wondering how you think all those things tied together, turnout numbers, uh, base motivation, and trying to broaden coalitions, whether that that favors or disadvantages one of the two runoff candidates. I actually think you're going to see, this is a guess, I think you're going to see uh, turnout increase. And typically, like you said, it does decrease in the runoff, but 
I think there'll be an increase. First of all, there are a number of um, aldermanic uh, runoffs that we'll get to in a minute that should drive overall turnout. Um, you've also got a pretty stark contrast between these two candidates. Um, it, four years ago, you had a, a runoff between Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot, and they're certainly different personalities, but I don't think quite as stark a contrast as you have between Vallis and, uh, and Brandon Johnson. John, to your point, it's definitely not unprecedented in 2015, which was the first time we've had a runoff in our runoff system between uh, then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel and uh, then-Cook County Commissioner Chewy Garcia. Uh, turnout did increase between the first round and the second round, jumping up uh, almost seven points to just over 41% in the second round. So it definitely would not be totally out of uh, track with the history for there to be more votes in the, the second round election. Yeah, and, and on their positions, I mean, both these guys, and this is like a classic political battle, right? You have one guy that's more right, one guy that's more left, and there were already a couple of days after the uh, the first go around um, tilting towards the middle. So there's they're both. Uh, Paul Vallis was, uh, I saw one of his ads yesterday where he's where he's talking about police reform. So he's kind of tilting towards the middle, and Brandon Johnson was on the radio yesterday talking about how he's going to promote more police detectives. So he's tilting towards the middle a little bit. So obviously the middle is the battleground and we'll see what happens. And Sydney, uh, just yesterday, uh, we're recording this on uh, Friday, uh, March 3rd. Yesterday, former Secretary of State Jesse White announced his endorsement for the Vallis campaign, and that's uh, expected to be followed soon by uh, Secretary White's protege and, and 27th Ward Alderman Walter Burnett. Do you expect to see more Black elected officials uh, come out for Vallis, or do you expect uh, the the Black establishment elected community, who uh, largely either stayed out of the mayoral race or endorsed Lori Lightfoot, do you expect to see them start to coalesce behind Brandon Johnson? Um, so I actually see it going two ways. I think people just assume that all of the you know, Black population in Chicago is against the police, and that is not the case. So I think we're going to see some individuals who have been exhausted of the violence, and they're like, we need more check on crime, you know, because they feel like the grace that has been given is not working. They still feel like they're being carjacked. So I think we're going to see, you know, a good portion of, you know, middle class, upper middle class, Black population potentially going to ballot specifically, you know, because they've noticed a difference in their quality of life. Um, on the other hand, you still have a large portion of the uh, Black community who is struggling, who, you know, they, they're they paid hourly, they, they lack um, the basic essentials and the needs. So I think we're going to see a split. Um, however, I think we'll get a better idea of things kind of going on as, you know, they release some more detailed policy plans regarding crime and education. Um, speaking on education, I think that's going to be a real battleground just because of Paul Ballas's, you know, previous record. And then the middle class and the um, higher income black population, they can afford to send their kids to private schools anyway. So that platform is just going to be a little bit different for them versus, you know, everyone else who has to go through the charter school, public school voucher kind of process. So I think it's we're going to see it split down the middle at this point, because for some people, Brandon Johnson is far too left. And I think we've kind of assumed that all black people are super progressive. And I think we're going to kind of learn that in this race, that is not the case. There's a, a big chunk of a moderate Black population in Chicago that often gets ignored um, during you know political and election season. Absolutely. So regardless of who ends up being mayor, whether it's Paul Vallis or Brandon Johnson, they're going to have to work with the city council 
that saw a large number of uh, retirements and, and members leaving to run for other office, including two candidates, Sophia King and Rod Sawyer, who unsuccessfully uh, ran for mayor and, and will be out of their seats uh, when the new term begins in May. However, notwithstanding that wave of retirements, um, city council incumbents actually had a pretty good night on Tuesday. Uh, only one incumbent, uh, 12th Ward uh, Alderperson Annabella Barca, uh, who was only appointed to the seat uh, in December by Mayor Lightfoot after her predecessor uh, moved on to a higher office, uh, was the only uh, incumbent member of the council that sought re-election who lost outright on Tuesday. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation on the, the wave of retirements that uh, members were just uh, burned out. They were burned out some from the COVID pandemic. Uh, they were burned out some from working with a mayor who could be difficult to work with, and they were just ready to move on. Um, but given the election results, John, do you think more uh, incumbent members should have stuck around and sought out re-election now that we're going to you know, be having a new mayor sworn in in May? Yeah, I think for for the aldermen who retired uh, or who ran for other office and lost, it's hard to generalize because it it boils down to individual decisions. I agree that I think a lot of the members were just tired of the job. Uh, I think part of that is because of the clash with uh, Mayor Lightfoot's style. Uh, I think part of it is, frankly, social media, I think, takes its toll on some of the electeds where they just get ripped to pieces on social media. Uh, and part of it is just a natural turnover. Um, you know, every uh, every four years, there's a turnover of the 50 all of them, and there's a turnover of, you know, 12, 13, 14. It's going to be higher this year. But there's a natural turnover as people decide uh, to move on for various reasons, uh, including pensions, right? I mean, you can watch people hit their pensions sometimes and figure, I don't need to deal with this anymore. So I don't know that any of them are going to regret uh, not running again. I, I think it's just kind of a natural uh, progression, and it just depends on the individual person. At that point, I, I saw a former member of the city council this week who left office in 2019, um, and I asked them if weeks like this, election week, uh, made them miss being in the game or made them that much happier about their decision to leave, and, and the answer was 100% the latter. Um, so I agree. I, I don't know that we're going to see a lot of a regret. Um, Sydney um, on our team does, uh, in addition to Chicago work, does a lot of work with the state legislature. And downstate, we've seen an influx of a lot of younger, a lot more progressive members. Um, and what we're seeing in Chicago is, I think, an, an open question as to where that progressive versus moderate contest is going to play out. Progressive members uh, picked up two seats in Tuesday's election. Uh, I mentioned uh, already the 12th Ward, the, the 14th Ward candidate, uh, which uh, former or soon-to-be former Alderman Ed Burke is vacating uh, after uh, 50 years in office, will be uh, taken over by a, a younger, um, more progressive female Latina candidate. But there's still an open question as we go into these runoff races as to whether the uh, more left-aligned uh, United Working Families Chicago Teachers Union-aligned candidates uh, will be successful or whether some of the more moderate, more business community-backed candidates will be successful. And that will have a big implication for uh, sort of the future of the city council and what sort of policies they uh, look to explore sort of regardless of how the, who the next mayor is. So, Sydney, I, I wonder if you can touch on sort of how you've seen that dynamic play out in the state legislature and how you think that might translate to the city council in the next term. 
Um, no, Greg Patrick, uh, specifically for the state legislator, we've seen in the last two to four years, more like almost six years, um, there's just been a quick flip uh, to get more um, progressive candidates elected into office. And I think we've seen there's been definitely a much more organized front on the political side to get these individuals in office um, with the understanding that they can you know, vote to increase minimum wage, vote for you know expansion of Medicaid and other healthcare components. Um, but that said, um, has that been necessarily a bad thing? No, I think it's made people come to the table and negotiate things in a different manner. Um, I think we've been able just to kind of have conversations on issues that have had a Band-Aid for many, many years. So I think it's, you know, it's going to, it's been a change, I think, for a lot of individuals and a lot of folks who are in the game. Um, and then also I kind of see how the increase of progressives really just pushes the progressive movement in the city. And so we've seen like a lot of progressive Illinois candidates kind of, you know, use their off time to really make sure that their chosen candidates are represented at the city council. Because obviously, you know, it's better when you like your alderman when you're in Springfield. And so those relationships definitely hold a lot of weight. Uh, I think the difference is with the city council, there's only 50 members. So it's a different, you know, level of management. Um, it's a different, you know, situation. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see um, what issues that people are willing to kind of cave in on and what issues that people are willing to negotiate. So I, I think we'll see kind of uh, that situation play out. And I think because of COVID, it really just highlighted all of the issues um, that, you know, working families have to go through every day that I think people don't know about. And so I think, a large portion of the population is still burned and recovering from some of the COVID devastation. So I think we're definitely going to see more progressives kind of come to office and kind of talk about that and figure out ways to uh, eradicate, you know, any of those deficiencies. Yeah, so yeah, and, and John. I'm just going to add real quick. Sydney makes a great point on um, progressives in Springfield. And, and I think it points out one of the differences between being a, a legislator and being a Chicago alderman. Historically, they're both legislative branch, obviously, but Springfield is more uh, policy-oriented, traditional legislative branch, and uh, Chicago City Council has been historically more all, almost a mini-executive branch where they're kind of the uh, you know the mayor of their own wards. There's a lot of nuts and bolts um, stuff that some people don't find all that interesting. As that shifts at Chicago City Council, as they get more engaged in policy issues, which they have done over the past 10 years or so, you may see more people who are interested in policy issues uh, running for Chicago Alderman as well as the state legislature. Yeah, and John, I was just going to point out a couple of specific races. So you have like the 36th Ward race where incumbent Alderman Gilbert Viegas is facing uh, United Working Families back candidate Lori Torres-Witt. You have the the open lakefront seats in both the 46th Ward and the 48th Ward. In 46, you have uh, Kim Walls, who's facing Angela Clay. Angela came in first in, in the first round of voting, uh, and she's uh, affiliated with the Democratic Socialists of America and also United Working Families. 48th Ward, you see uh, Joe Dunn uh, also facing a progressive challenger uh, and Lenny uh, Hopenworth. I also mentioned the business community, and there, there's been some you know, super PACs and other groups that have been involved in these races. You know, I'm expecting to see uh, the Chicago business community uh, effectively go all in on Paul Vallis. And, uh, you know, to the extent that business has been somewhat staying on the sideline, 
some business uh, community members were supportive of Mayor Lightfoot. Others were sort of waiting to see what would happen. Um, how do you think, though, that uh, influx of support for Vallis uh, from business interests, you know, many of whom, you know, are either based outside of Chicago or live outside of Chicago, but have interests here. How do you think those uh, trickle down to some of those individual uh, aldermanic ward by ward races? So it, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Um, to run a campaign, you need money, and it's certainly good to get contributions. On the other hand, sometimes the source of the money can be used against you. So if you look at the uh, the 25th Ward race, where uh, the incumbent, um, Alderman Byron Sucho Lopez, held on to his seat, I mean, he did make um, some political um, um, hay out of the fact that his opponent was getting uh, at least some contributions from uh, the business community. The, the wards you mentioned, the 36th ward, I think is particularly interesting. That's Alderman, the incumbent is um, Alderman Gil Villegas. He is the incumbent, but he has a, a significantly changed ward due to redistricting. He also lost a race for Congress. So he's, um, you would think that um, he would win that race. I would think that the, uh, the business community is going to support him. Um, in the 46th ward, where you've got Kim Walls versus Angela Clay, Yes, the business community will will support Kim. And same thing, I think, with Joe Dunn in the 48th Ward. 46 and 48 were pretty good wards for Brandon Johnson. So first of all, the runoffs in those wards should boost turnout, which theoretically should help Brandon Johnson. But to your ultimate point about the money, I think it's going to help the people who get the money, but you know, it also can be used against them. Uh, Sydney, I, I have one more automatic runoff question, um, which is there were... Uh, four members that Mayor Lightfoot appointed during her uh, first and only term, um, and none of those members uh, won office outright on Tuesday. I already mentioned 12th Ward Alderperson Abarco, who uh, lost her reelection bid, and then you have 11th Ward Alderperson Nicole Lee, uh, 24th Ward Alderperson Monique Scott, and 43rd Ward with Timmy Knudsen, all three of whom have ended up in runoffs. How do you think those races play out for those candidates now that a mayor who may have been a, a drag on some of their candidacies, you know, in particular in the, in the 11th Ward, Mayor Lightfoot did not generate any significant number of votes. And what sort of other dynamics do you see playing into those uh, appointed ward uh, races now that uh, uh, the appointer uh, in Mayor Lightfoot is, is somewhat out of the picture? Um, no, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think uh, for uh, for those candidates, they've been able to kind of establish themselves separate of her, regardless of the appointments. Um, they have a diverse group that kind of supports them. So I think that will help them. Um, and I think a lot of those candidates specifically, you know, are a little more progressive and different than the mayor. So I think they will kind of be able to deal with that. Um, I think the kind of the issue maybe is when the rest of their colleagues are elected and who are way more progressive and are, you know, are staunch opponents of the mayor. So I think it'll be interesting to see how, you know, those relationships may come to pass. And second, um, with the 11th Ward with Nicole Lee, I think that's more of a, you know, a cultural significance. I believe that was drawn to be, you know, the first city's uh, Asian American Ward. And um, in a city that's as diverse as Chicago, the fact that there has not been, you know, an Asian American elected into um, the city council since Nicole, I think is very prominent. So I think regardless of who the appointer is, I think that's where we're going to still see um, people coming out strong. And I say that because Representative Teresa Ma 
and was the first Asian American elected in the state legislature. And since then, she has really built up a coalition to increase representation um, for the Asian American community, um, whether it be in the state legislature, the Cook County Board, and other city council. I think that's going to hold a little bit more weight uh, than anything. So I think that's something an advantage that Nicole has that maybe other people do not have, is uh, representation is very, very important, and it's um, more acceptable for that type of representation to occur. So what, one additional point, or one question, really, uh, I'm, the question about the um, the Lightfoot appointees, you know, four of them, one of them got beat, three in runoffs, it sort of begs the question of, would you accept the appointment uh, if you were those with those candidates? And it's sort of hard to say, I mean, you know, theoretically, you could say, I'm not going to accept the, the mayor's appointment because she, uh, was, you know, wasn't polling well, uh, wasn't super popular. Um, on the other hand, you know, Nicole Lee got 30% of the vote. Uh, Timmy Knutson got 27, 28% of the vote. So had they not accepted that appointment, would they have been elected outright? I'm not so sure. Um, so anyway, it's sort of an interesting question about whether you should accept it or not. Ultimately, I come down on probably probably didn't make that much difference in their uh, in their numbers. Yeah, so a lot to watch uh, as we head towards the April 4th runoff, both on the mayoral front and the aldermanic front, as we've discussed. Uh, I'm not going to ask the two of you to make predictions of who you think the next mayor will be, um, but I do think that as we've discussed, the two candidates for mayor present really stark differences um, for what their vision of Chicago is, the city they think Chicago should be, and the types of policies they would prioritize when they're in office. Um, I think we'll probably all agree that the election will be somewhat close. Uh, there doesn't appear to be a clear uh, candidate who uh, looks poised to break away from the other and, and run up a, a vote total like what Lori Lightfoot did four years ago. So the, the last question I'll, I'll ask you to leave our audience with is, you know, given that dynamic and given that only one of these candidates will be successful, what do you think they will need to do in order to start to unify the city? Um, behind their their vision and how will they start to engender support to get their their campaign platforms enacted into policy? Um, I can kick it off, John, and then you can kind of finish it. Uh, so I, I don't even know where to start, so many things. Uh, so far, I think Brandon Johnson, um, I do think because of his diverse coalition, he, will de- he definitely has a good spot. Um, however, I think he will need to kind of be a little more detailed in his proposal regarding public safety. Um, as kind of mentioned before, I think Pop Ballas is going to have to really realign himself. And I think he's going to have to be forced to answer questions about his previous reign um, at CPS. And I think those two, were kind of, those two kind of questions will just help determine um, kind of like the course of their race. I also think Johnson is going to um, need to kind of like be open to like conversation. And I think he has been with previous policy platforms where he's put them out there and then he's received feedback and then he's changed course. So I think that really solidifies him as someone who's a lot more humble and willing to have discussions about his policies, just, you know, with various different people. Um, And I do think he may be a little bit easier and better for to unify city council and the city versus Paul Ballas, who already has kind of like a negative track record in some of his previous roles. So it's it's going to kind of be interesting to see how both of them can kind of like signify their importance and then their ability to, you know, accomplish what the city needs to accomplish. I think the key word that city mentioned is unify. I think people want a, a leader who is going to unify the city. And so uh, who that's going to be, Vallis or Brandon Johnson, I'm not sure, but the 
um, the fighting with city council, the fighting with Springfield. I think people want somebody's going to pull them together. It's going to be difficult because this, uh, as you pointed out, Pat, this um, election is a study in contrast. You've got, you know, old versus young, white versus black, uh, somebody whose core message is public safety versus somebody whose core message is centers around uh, the sort of wealth disparity. So it's a real contrast between the two. So whoever gets elected, I think is going to have their work cut out for them uh, unifying the city. I think the second thing is people are looking for somebody who can be a manager and run the city. So whoever whoever it is, as one automatic candidate said to me years ago, worst case scenario is I win. So somebody's going to wake up on April 5th and think, what did I do this for? We'll see who it is. Well, certainly a lot to watch. Uh, we thank everybody for tuning in to today's edition of the Beltway Briefing from Chicago. Uh, we hope you all stay tuned and watch for uh, the runoff election results on April 4th and lots more to come uh, from our Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies practice uh, here in Chicago and Illinois. Thank you. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.